0: Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, as Indians start voting in the world's biggest exercise in democracy, we ask who is Narendra Modi, and can anything stop him becoming India's next Prime Minister? And we hear how much progress Italy's new Prime Minister, Matteo Renzi, is making in implementing the sweeping reforms he promised. But we begin with the search for Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, which disappeared a month ago after it took off from Kuala Lumpur on its way to Beijing with 239 people on board. This week, an Australian naval vessel taking part in the search picked up signals that could have come from black box flight recorders. Angus Houston, the man in charge of the search for the missing aircraft in the southern Indian Ocean, described the signals as the most promising lead so far. To find out more, I'm joined now from Beijing by our Asia correspondent Clifford Coonan. Clifford, how promising is this latest lead?
1: Well, searchers have said that it's the most promising so far. Um, and it's also at a crucial, it comes at a crucial time in the search because the uh, signal has 30 days from the black box. Uh, what is confusing is that there are two signals. One was picked up by the Chinese and one by the Australians. So uh, we're still trying to, searchers are still trying to determine um, which of these ones is, uh, is, is the correct one. But at the moment, they're focusing on the Australian one and they say that the, the ping is, is consistent with the sound uh, um, issued by a black box. So it's, it's, uh, po- it's probably not um, some kind of um, ocean animal or whatever. So they're basically focusing on this now.
0: And if they do, in fact, identify it as being what they think it is or what they hope it is, how difficult is it going to be to actually retrieve it from the, uh, the sea?
2: well
1: it's it's an extremely difficult challenge it's um the signal could be anything as deep as four thousand five hundred meters, which is uh, extremely deep and it also makes it extremely difficult to work um What they're doing is they're sending in um a large uh, oceanic search vessel um which will uh, trawl the ocean floor looking for this this black box, but it's in a, it's, it it's covers a large area of space and as i say it's it's four point five kilometres. Uh, down below so this um, below the waves so this this large machine is, is um, will also have to it, it's going to be a difficult search um, before they can they can actually find anything
0: now for weeks now we've been spotting on uh, a tv net- networks we've been spotting all this wreckage or what they th- what people thought was wreckage and it turned out most of the time just to be debris is there uh, any evidence now that we are actually looking in the right place
1: um well certainly the tone has been has been more positive than than um than it has previously um although as you as you say i mean there's been constant sort of um sightings of different things which have shown been shown to be false um they the rescuers did say that even though the black box would be ideal the battery runs out after 30 days and they would it would be easier if they could find some other form of evidence some form of wreckage or something easier to work with because working at four point five kilometers below the waves is extremely difficult as they say um but um they say that it is consistent the the pings are consistent with work done on um on uh, radar and satellite data um and ocean shield which is this this vessel that they're they're sending down is um you know is the most hopeful
0: sign yet. This search has been going on now for a month. It's on a a really, really massive scale involving so many different actors from different parts of the world. How much does it cost? Do we know how much it has cost so far?
1: Um, Well, there's so many governments involved. I mean, we've had 133 search missions so far, and um, everyone in the region is involved. The U.S. um, say that they have spent $3.3 million um, so far, uh, the Chinese have devoted um, more ships and planes than than the than the, Austra- than the US have, and so their bill must be much higher. And as we know, the majority of the people on the plane were Chinese. Um, Australia is apparently spending more than half a million dollars a day on just one of the ships that it has in the in the Indian Ocean. So um, the experts are saying that it's difficult to come up with a full estimate for what the ongoing search costs, but it's it's believed to be in the many millions of dollars at this stage.
0: Two-thirds of the people on board the aircraft uh, are or were Chinese. Uh, how is this whole search being perceived in China?
1: Well, um, it's been kind of going back and forth. I mean, the, there's been a lot of criticism of the Malaysian authorities in China, um, but um, things really escalated um, in recent in the. Um, in recent weeks, when we had a, um, people marching on the embassy, um, the, the government here has tried to has tried to reel things in a little bit and um, is trying to um, you know give the, the Malaysians a bit of leeway at this point. But um, it has it's still there's still a, a lingering belief that the Malaysians aren't handling it well um a lot of this could be um just frustration at the fact that people can't find can't find the aircraft and um and so they believe that the Malaysians are holding back um information but what it appears to be is that there is no information um there's so many conspiracy theories flying around um there's all kinds of wild theories so basically um it's um basically now focused on the uh on the relatives and and the relatives are, are still very upset but People are, are be, a little bit more weight, adopting a wait-and-see attitude now.
0: The, uh, this, uh, As you say, there's been very little real information and very little uh, that's really real has been happening. But that hasn't stopped the uh, news networks, notably CNN, from giving blanket coverage to this search. How mm-hmm. has that been perceived by the uh, families of the passengers and by the people in China as well?
2: well it's um the,
1: the blanket coverage has been i mean the the domestic media has has definitely um reeled in coverage it's not doing as much as it was but cnn and and other news agencies are are doing a lot a lot of coverage um the families at this stage are frazzled um they're basically following every lead they're jumping on um as we've been as we've been discussing this is is a much more realistic um sign of progress today because this is related to something verifiable and um even though um, there's there's conflicting messages about these two signals are at different ends of of quite a long spectrum. Um, People are certainly more hopeful that they might find uh, wreckage. But um, the questions are also turning among the families and also more broadly here in in China and and in the region about how it happened, Um, what exactly took place. Was this mechanical failure? Was it a hijacking? Did one of the crew members... um, take the plane deliberately off course and, and landed in the Indian Ocean. So um, we've got various conflicting um, theories at the moment, and, and the reaction generally is, one, is still one of, um, of uh, anxiety.
0: Is there a dominant theory about that, about the actual cause of what happened, if it was human agency, in other words, a decision by one of the pilots mm. to go in one direction rather than another?
2: Well, again,
1: these, these theories are changing every day. I mean, there's different um, because obviously the Malaysian authorities are under pressure uh, from the Chinese and they feel they have to keep communicating information, but there isn't really any information there. So um, in recent days, we have, the theory has come around to the fact that it was one of the crew members But um, at the same time, once people start pursuing that theory, then they say, well, we haven't ruled out uh, mechanical failure and we haven't ruled out a third party on the airplane taking over and deliberately hijacking the plane. So um, the theories are changing every day. I think currently the prevailing theory is that it was one of the crew who, um, who deliberately led it off course. But Again, it's not, it doesn't seem to be based on any, on any hard information. It seem, these seem to be sort of theories that people are, are putting out there.
0: If the uh, rescue teams actually find the black box or indeed find some of the wreckage of the aircraft, what happens then? Do they uh, then seek to recover any of the bodies uh, or, if, uh, or, or is that something that's just going to be too difficult?
1: Well, there's been varying theories about that. Um, they're saying that um, if, it's, if it's so deep... Um, as um I the the original the signals are they're one thousand seven hundred and fifty kilometers northwest of Paris, So this is very far into the water. They're four thousand five hundred meters uh, down below. So um basically at this stage after thirty two days they're not really expecting to find um to find much um that the, presuming um that that the wreckage has been broken up over a large area. So um a lot of it depends on um, on how much uh, how many components they can salvage of, of the aircraft and in what condition it's in. But um, again, they're they're um, not saying too much about what they're going to what they're expecting to find at the moment. They're just trying to um, to locate the um, the black box recorder and then to,
0: to take it from there. Clifford Coonan in Beijing. Thank you. This week, Indians started voting in what's not just the world's biggest exercise in democracy, but one of the most drawn out. 814 million people are entitled to vote in the general election, with voting taking place over five weeks. The governing coalition, led by the Congress Party, is facing a major challenge from the Hindu nationalist BJP, led by the hugely popular but deeply divisive figure of Narendra Modi. The signs are that the Congress Party, led by Rahul Gandhi, is heading for defeat, and that Narendra Modi is destined to become Prime Minister. I'm joined now from Delhi by our correspondent Rahul Bedi. Rahul, is Mr Modi about to become the Prime Minister?
3: Well, if uh, polls are to be believed, uh, Mr Modi does have an advantage, um, but uh, chances are that he will not form the government on his own, because uh, he needs 272 seats and the projections give him a little over 200, so he will need to form a coalition. But if he does secure the 200-odd seats, uh, I think securing the uh, remaining 72 is not going to be such a major problem because he has already tied up with various regional parties, which will give him the necessary majority. Who is
0: Narendra Modi, and why is he so divisive?
3: Uh, Narendra Modi is a politician from the Hindu right-wing BJP party, he grew up in the parent organization of the bjp which is the rss it's a uh, it's it, it's a voluntary uh, social voluntary service hindu organization which has its roots in the 1920s uh, as an anti muslim um, organization and uh, he rose to become chief minister of the western indian state of gujarat in 2001 and uh, has propelled his state uh, to the forefront of uh, Uh, economic success. And uh, the reason he is divisive is that there were riots in uh, Gujarat in 2002 uh, in which about 1,200 people, mainly Muslims, died. And uh, Mr. Modi is seen as uh, the person who, if not behind the riots, was at least played a very tacit role in encouraging the rioters and in not ordering the law and order machinery to take care of the rioters. Uh, So he is seen as a... As an anti-Muslim force and as a person who brooks no dissent, who uh, takes decisions with a very small cabal of uh, people around him, uh, and is all around a very aggressive and uh, divisive figure.
0: And why is he so popular?
3: Well, he's largely popular because of the unpopularity of the Congress Party. The Congress Party has been in power now for 10 years uh, it was re-elected in 2009, and in the last four or five years, it's been driven with uh, corruption, with misgovernance, with uh, lack of decision-making, and uh, basically supine Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, who has uh, been an economic disaster, despite being uh, a very proficient economist. So Modi is being helped also by the inefficiencies uh, and malgovernance of the Congress party.
0: The, the, if you look at India over the last few years, we've heard an awful lot about the rising middle class, about shining India, about India being a great rising economic power in the world. But one gets a sense of a certain sense of disappointment on the behalf of the Indian people.
3: Well, there is a huge sense of disappointment because uh, prices are rising, food prices are rising, fuel prices are rising. Uh, every life has become much more expensive. Uh, jobs uh, are non-existent. And the uh, growth rate, which uh, in the early years of Congress party rule, from about 2004 to about 2009, which was uh, roughly about 8 percent, has now uh, come down to about 4.5 percent, which uh, in international terms is is quite impressive, but in Indian terms is is very low, given the large population that India has. Uh, So there is a huge, huge sense of disappointment, and everybody seems to think that Mr. Modi has the magic bullet. Uh, and that he can recreate, uh, what he has done in Gujarat in the rest of India. Uh, and, uh, he, in fact, yesterday the BJP came out with its manifesto which talks about a developmental model of governance, uh, which is, uh, which uh, is very high on uh, delivery and uh, low in a sense on maintenance. Uh, so it really is uh, the jury is still out on whether Mr. Modi can uh, resurrect the moribund economy, uh, which the Congress uh, has uh, has perpetuated.
0: There's a, a third party, a new party, which uh, is called Am Admi or the Common Man Party, and they seem to be doing well uh, also. How, can you tell us something about them?
3: Well, the Amarnay Party came into being a little over a year ago in response, uh, as a reformist party, in response to the corruption in both the BJP as well as in the Congress, uh, and it uh, it comprises uh, largely young people. About 65% of India's population and about 50% of the 814 million voters that you mentioned are between the age of about uh, uh, 18 and 35. And uh, they are aspirational. Uh, They are frustrated because of a lack of uh, of opportunity. And the Aam Aadmi Party was targeting this uh, this group of people, and it did very well. Although it's been in uh, in existence only a little over a year, it did very well in local elections in Delhi. In fact, it even formed the local government in Delhi. But unfortunately, it lasted only about uh, a little under two months. Uh, And now it's fighting the elections all over India. It has a certain resonance amongst people, but it's too young, it's too fledgling, and it doesn't really have the resources. But again, projections seem to indicate that of the five hundred and forty three seats in Parliament, it could Uh, manage to secure about uh, anywhere between 10 and 20 seats, which would make it a fairly big player in the uh, coalition politics that uh, India has spawned over the last uh, almost 20 years. Meanwhile, the
0: Congress Party is being led in these elections by the latest figure from the Gandhi dynasty, Rahul Gandhi. Uh, What sort of person is he?
3: Uh, Very little is known about Rahul Gandhi's capabilities because he is... uh, he is, in a sense, to the man of born. Uh, he's, he belongs to the Nehru Gandhi dynasty. Uh, he's uh, been educated at uh, Harvard and Cambridge. Uh, but he's never really held any, any, uh, any either ministerial post or any real responsibility. He was elevated uh, to vice presidency or the number two slot in the Congress party, but that is purely because uh, of his lineage rather than his capabilities. And uh, he is perceived as a reluctant leader He's perceived as somebody who's uh, a little disinterested, and he lacks the charisma, and he lacks the verve uh, the of uh, Mr. Modi, uh, also in his uh, in election rallies and in his speeches. And he's not really, and although he's not been projected by the Congress party as a prime ministerial candidate, he is a prime minister in waiting. But again, not because of his capabilities, but because of his ancestry.
0: This election, as I mentioned, is going on over a period of a number of weeks. Could you explain why the, the voting lasts so long and how it works?
3: Well, uh, India, is a, as you know, is a very vast country uh, with a population of uh, over 1.25 billion. Uh, 814 million eligible voters is uh, about four times the population, or three and a half times the population of the United States. Uh, So to get so many people, or to make arrangements for so many people to vote uh, is a huge problem. Also, over the last uh, 50 or 60 years, Indian elections have tended uh, a little towards violence. Not so much in recent years, but then there is always the danger of violence. And uh, this needs uh, preventive measures like paramilitary forces and police forces to be moved around the country to prevent uh, any outbreak of, uh, of trouble. Uh, and because these large forces need to move, uh, the election is being held in nine phases, uh, which uh, conclude on the 12th of May. Uh, elections' uh, results are going to be uh, announced on the 16th. And because uh, voting is taking place in electronic machines, and uh, electronic machines have been used, in fact, for the last four or five elections, uh, results will be known by later on the 16th, and we will know uh, which, which uh, party has uh, been successful.
0: Finally, Rahul, if Narendra Modi does indeed become India's prime minister, do India's Muslims or India's neighbors have anything to fear from him?
3: Well, Indian Muslims are not going to uh, vote for Mr. Modi because Mr. Modi is perceived to be very anti-Muslim, and that in itself is a problem because uh, the Muslims vote uh, about 15 percent of India's population is uh, of Muslim origin, and about uh, roughly a little over 100 or 110 seats uh, out of 543 are determined by the Muslim vote. So that um, rules Mr. Modi out uh, of uh, roughly about 100 seats, because he's not likely to get that vote. Um, Muslims are worried uh, if Mr. Modi comes in. Uh, the neighbourhood Pakistan too is watching India very carefully, but is being a little circumspect because it's an internal matter. Um, uh, yesterday, as I said, the election uh, manifesto, the BJP manifesto was uh, was made public, and it talked about uh, revising the nuclear doctrine of India, uh, which in fact uh, India became a nuclear weapon state under the BJP in 1998 and it talks about revising the no-first-use policy, which again is uh, uh, worrisome. Uh, So it really remains to be seen whether Modi will pursue his aggression or uh, the responsibility of office will uh, manage to make him a little more circumspect.
0: Rahul Bedi in Delhi, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. Italy's Prime Minister Matteo Renzi took office six weeks ago, promising to transform Italy's economy and overhaul its public administration, tax system and electoral law all within his first hundred days. Aged just 39, Mr Renzi has certainly made a splash on the world stage, meeting everybody from Barack Obama and Angela Merkel to Pope Francis. Mr. Obama praised the Italians' ambition, energy and vision, adding that these qualities were not just good for Italy, but for Europe too. But beyond all the glad handling, how is Mr. Renzi getting along with the task of transforming Italy? I'm joined now from Rome by our correspondent Paddy Agnew. Paddy, Matteo Renzi made some big promises when he took office. Could you remind us of some of the most important pledges that he made for his first 100 days?
2: Yeah, absolutely, This is the man who came into politics uh, on uh, a demolition uh, criteria. He calls himself a demolition man because he wants to send uh, old Italian politicians on old Italian politics onto the scrappy. And as far as his immediate program of change is concerned, he wanted to make fundamental reforms. He, want to abolish, he wants to abolish the Senate. He wants to uh, introduce new electoral legislation. And uh, he wants to introduce new labor laws, uh, what he calls the Job Act. And those remain the three cardinal elements in his reform program.
0: And how's he been getting along so far?
2: Well, he's done uh, what you just outlined. He's had a a whirlwind start in terms of public relations, which he's he's very good at. And, you know, given... The, the gerontocratic nature of Italian politics. I think uh, people at home and abroad are delighted to see a 39-year-old as prime minister, and he's got he's uh, been received very well. But obviously, uh, you know, in six weeks he can't he, he can't deliver very much. But the signs are already that he's going to have a great deal of difficulty to deliver any of the three areas we've talked about. Uh, you know, on, on uh, the question of electoral reform, for example. Constitutionalists point out that uh, his bill uh, creates uh, an anomaly whereby uh, if you get uh, 37% of the votes, thanks to the uh, majority uh, premium, uh, premium, you end up with 350 uh, seats. Uh, Whereas uh, if you win 50% of the votes, 51% of the votes in a second round not uh, runoff vote, uh, you get much less. You get 327, and that doesn't seem very sensible, you know. You get more, and you, with more seat for thirty-seven percent of the vote than if fifty-one percent of the vote.
0: And just in terms of his own coalition, I mean, he's a man of the centre-left Matteo Renzi, but he's, his coalition is a rather complicated one. Could you explain that to us?
2: Well, it's basically a national coalition, a national government. I mean, it's inherited from Enrico Letta, who in, in turn inherited from uh, Mario Monti. Basically, you have centre-left and centre-right, and the, the major figures in the, in the centre-left, the old uh, the party's Democratic, the old Communist Party, and the major figure in the centre-right is Mr Silvio Berlusconi and his Forza Italia. Uh, and that is one of the biggest... Facing him at the moment, because uh, one the first thing that Renzi did when he got when he was uh, elected leader of the uh, uh, PDs, the Party Democratic, the first thing he did was uh, making or uh, have a meeting with Berlusconi, making a, uh, come to an agreement with Berlusconi about his reform program, particularly about the uh, reform of the Senate and, above all, uh, electoral reform. Now that agreement, surprise, surprise, and uh, no, it's, it's not a surprise. do to anybody who knows, Mr. Berlusconi. Now that agreement. Is looking a bit shaky because uh, Mr Berlusconi doesn't doesn't like the pace at which it's going, and he's uh, Mr Berlusconi himself is on Thursday this week. He's awaiting judicial uh, uh, ruling on how he's going to uh, serve his year of uh, his prison sentence uh, for the multi tax fraud. And as he awaits the, the judge's decision to whether to uh, commit to some sort of social services or uh, to house arrest, uh, he's uh, very keen to get to get some something in return from Mr. Rendy the Mr. Randi uh, that would help him, might be, Keep him alive, he feels politically, and uh, Mr. Renzi is refusing to do that. So there are problems uh, very, very shortly up the road for him.
0: Are there any signs about where public opinion is? Does uh, Matteo Renzi have the wind of popular uh, popular support at his back?
2: Yes, there's no question of that. I mean, he's he's uh, all the most recent uh, opinion polls that I've seen uh, show him still with a with a, a very uh, reasonable. Uh, uh, a racing. Um, but that's obvious. I mean, we're still very much in the honeymoon period. He hasn't had time to do anything either or good or bad. I mean, it has to be said as well, he's he's done a couple of uh, of uh, uh, small things which um, may turn out to be... You know, which which indicate what he wants to do for... He, i.e. selling uh, ministerial blue cars on eBay. He sold a couple of them yesterday. And also, possibly much more important, he has promised, although he hasn't yet delivered an extra 80 euros per month to PAYE workers all over Italy. And that obviously will go down well.
0: Paddy Agnew in Rome, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. From producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer JJ Vernon, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.